you want to mind, go ahead and take out your scriptures and open to the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 4. And as Dan said, we're concluding our study in this book, um, this amazing New Testament letter that has meant so much to so many people. And as we say goodbye to this book, I find myself a little bit emotional. Uh, actually, since we turned the corner and went into chapter 4 of this book, I found myself kind of dreading saying goodbye to the Apostle Paul as a community of faith because he has meant so much to us. Some of you have talked to me about how much you've learned and how much this has encouraged your walk with Christ. And it's just really been a lot of fun. And, and maybe I'm just getting sentimental as I get older. And there'll be a chance for us to resume another study of one of Paul's letters in the future, God willing. But it got me thinking about goodbyes because Paul in this last chapter and these words that we're looking at are say, uh, saying his goodbyes to these Philippians. And so as I was thinking about it, I was thinking of some famous goodbyes in history and, you know, those famous last words, not last words, famous words from the Terminator, hasta la vista, baby. Or how about this one? Here's looking at you, kid, from Casablanca. Uh, do you remember that scene in Star Wars when Han Solo was about to be cast in carbonate or whatever that was, and he's saying goodbye to... Princess Leia, and she says to him, I love you. And in true form, he says, I know. <laughs> what about that goodbye from the Lord of the Rings where Bilbo says to his friends as he's getting ready to leave the Shire, I don't know half of you half as well as you, I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. That's a pretty good one. <laughs> the Apostle Paul was no stranger to goodbyes. You see, ever since he met the resurrected Lord Jesus and he commissioned him to go and preach the gospel, he moved around the Roman Empire preaching to whoever would listen and establishing new churches and communities of faith. And there's this one place in the book of Acts where he's saying goodbye to his Ephesian friends after spending two years teaching them and discipling them and instructing them on how to follow Jesus and be a community of faith in that town. And we're told in the book of Acts, that when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. Well, Paul would eventually find himself in prison, and he would be writing a letter to his friends, the Philippians, and we're going to look at some of the final words that he said to them today. And so we're going to call our study... Gifts, grace, and glory, because those are all mentioned in this final little section that we're looking at today. And so we're going to actually begin back in chapter 10, which we looked at last week, and our study for today will resume at verse 14. But I just wanted to back up and give you the context, because these are part of his final words as well. He said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I mean, Paul went through some crazy things to bring the gospel to people all over the place. He had been imprisoned, he had been stoned, he'd been shipwrecked, he had people persecuting him. He had the Romans keeping their eye on him. He went through so much, and he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so we come to verse 14. And he says to his friends in Philippi, It was kind of you to share my trouble. As he thinks about this occasion, he has to write them with Epaphroditus coming and bringing a financial gift to Paul. 
so that he could have food to eat in prison. He is very thankful for what they've done. And as he reflects and says his goodbyes, he said, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. No doubt he's thinking about what he wrote in the book of Galatians, that kindness is itself a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that God's holy presence produces in the life of the followers of Jesus. And, and he's highlighting their kindness to him. Do you remember that quote from Abraham Joshua Heschel? He said, when I was young, I admired clever people. Now that I am old, I admire kind people. I don't know about you, but I find that to be the case. Have you arrived at that place in your life where you're not so much impressed by how clever people can come across, but what really impresses you is kindness? I know I am. Verse 15, Paul goes on and says, And you Philippians yourselves know, there we go, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Here he mentions the, the beginning of the gospel, and he's not thinking in terms of the beginning of the gospel when Jesus was proclaiming it. He's talking about the, the beginning of the gospel's advance into Macedonia and further west. And he's talking about how they helped him along even then. And actually, when Paul was in Macedonia, remember Philippi is, is headquartered there in Macedonia, he said, no other church entered into partnership with me. That might have been because they were too young. That might have been that there, were, there was not enough going on there. But the Philippians, in their situation, was willing to partner with him. And we made note before that that word partnership in Greek is that, that word koinonia. I'm not saying that just to try to impress you with Greek, but you've heard of perhaps churches named after that phrase, koinonia. It means a partnership or participation, an association or communion, or even a fellowship. Think of the Lord of the Rings when there's that fellowship of the ring that was tasked with the assignment to carry the ring of power to Mount Doom. So Paul is using that kind of language here. He says, you all partner with me when no one else could or would. And so back in verse chapter 1, he made these comments. I thank my God because of my partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He is very thankful for their willing to partner with him through thick and thin. And so he says in verse 16, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Remember Paul, when he was in Philippi, preached the gospel, some people were converted, and he made a stir there, and he got thrown into prison. And he was there for, for a short time, but the authorities asked him to leave the town. So Paul was not with these people for very long, and yet God knit their hearts together with this servant of Jesus. And so when he made his next stop in Thessalonica, I can't, Dan, it's, a, it's affecting me. When he made his next stop in Thessalonica, they were already sending him gifts to partner with him in the advance, the spread of the good news of Jesus. Then he says something interesting in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. Gabby, can you pour for me? My iPad is losing. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What is he saying here? Not that I seek the gift that they gave to him, or, or maybe even more, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I like the way Dennis Johnson put it in his commentary. He said, what thrills Paul about the Philippians' gift is not what it does for him, but what it does for his friends in Philippi. I mean, he's, he's been supplied by them, and he's thankful for that, but what really excites him 
is what God is doing in their hearts to make them even want to do this. It's interesting, in the book of Corinthians, Paul is writing to really a wealthy church living in the cosmopolitan town of, of Corinth, and he's trying to persuade them to give some money so he can take it to some Christians in Jerusalem who are experiencing an extreme famine. And so he's trying to persuade them, and he uses the Philippians as an example. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. Remember, that's where Philippi was. For, get this, in a severe test of affliction, they're going through it. It's not smooth sailing for them. They're in a very hard place. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy. There's that theme of joy that so permeates the book of Philippians. The Philippians' abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That almost doesn't make sense, right? They're facing extreme poverty. and They're in a severe test of an affliction. But yet, the Spirit of God is producing joy in their lives. And it's resulted in in an overflow of generosity on their part. He goes on and says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They said, Paul, there, there are Christians in Jerusalem that are suffering. We want to give to help them out. Paul could say, what are you going to give? You guys are in extreme poverty. They're like, it doesn't matter. We're going to give towards that. And so Paul uses that example of the Philippians to try to persuade the Corinthians. And he'll say in his next breath to the Corinthians, since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. You see, what the Philippians know is the truth about what Jesus said. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you believe that? I know all of us would... All of, us, all of us who follow Jesus and know that he said that would agree that he said that. But, but do we believe that? To be honest with you, I have a hard time with that sometimes. But Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. I don't know about you, but I like to receive. I, I find it blessed when I receive things, don't you? But Jesus says... Um, It's more blessed to give than to receive. Someone says, hey, pastor, I know exactly what you're doing. You're just wanting people to give money to your church, don't you? That's not at all what we're talking about here. Paul the Apostle is seeking the fruit of these Christians' faith so that it may increase to their credit. Did you see what he said there? (laughs) That it may increase to your credit. Gabby, can you forward that? For he says, uh, for a couple of other, other translations, translate it like this. It increases to your account. It's credited to, to your account. Paul knows that something's going on here. That when God stirs their hearts to give, to contribute to the needs of the poor, when, when they give to contribute to the mission of Jesus, Jesus takes note of that. And, and there's, a, there's an account. They get credit for that. And maybe they know that teaching of Jesus when he said, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus says, look, if you see one of my little kids, one of my little disciples 
thirsty and you give them a, a cup of cold water, you will by no means lose your reward. I mean, that almost seems crazy. I mean, a cup of water is, is nothing. And Jesus says, I, I see it. And not only do I see that, but I'm going to reward you for it. Jesus also said in the Gospel of Matthew, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Some of you know who Alistair Begg is. He's an international speaker and communicator of the truth of the gospel. And in my preparation for this study this week, I came across um, a description of something that he called an individual eternal account. The work I was looking at put it like this. Alistair Begg says that while it's not a bad idea to have an IRA, an individual retirement account, every Christian should have an IEA an individual, eternal account in which we lay up treasures in heaven. Beg asked us not only uh, do we have one, but what is in it, and when did you make your last contribution? Do you ever think about having an individual, eternal account? That's something new for, for many of us. And yet, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but instead you can send your treasures forward by investing in an eternal individual account. Dennis Johnson, the New Testament scholar, put it like this. He said, money is a deeply spiritual matter. For those of us who follow Jesus, we, we know that to be true. He spoke about money often. Money is a deeply spiritual matter. Where your funds are invested shows where your heart really is. So the question is, where is your heart? So Paul goes on in verse 18. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Here, by, by speaking of their gifts as a fragrant offering and as a sacrifice, he's, he's riffing on Old, Old Testament imagery when they would make sacrifices at the temple and the smoke would ascend and it would be a fragrant offering to God. He's riffing on that. It's interesting, I punched in that phrase in my Bible search software, and the only other time Paul uses this description as a, of a fragrant offering of sacrifice is, is in relation to Jesus himself. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, he calls his friends there to, to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, the, the offering Jesus made for us was a fragrant offering, a, a sacrifice pleasing to God. It secured our salvation. And so likewise, when Paul uses that phrase, a fragrant offering, he's not meaning that, that we atone for our sins, but he's saying that is something that is offered to God, just like Jesus offered himself, that can become pleasing to God. And so he says in verse 18 about this fragrant offering and a sacrifice, that it is acceptable. It is pleasing to God. So here's the question I have for you. Have you ever stopped to think that your giving can be an act of worship? I don't know that we always do. I think sometimes we can think of singing as an act of worship. We can think about coming to communion together as an act of worship. Maybe even fellowship as an act of worship. But do we think of giving as an act of worship? Specifically, your giving to the worldwide advance of the gospel of Jesus is a spiritual act of worship. 
specifically. Our giving to help the weak and vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the immigrant, is a spiritual act of worship. You cannot give to the interest of Jesus without Jesus seeing it, without Jesus being delighted in it, and without Jesus guaranteeing that he will reward you for it. So these Philippians are giving. And the reason they're giving financially to this cause is because their hearts had already been given to the Lord. That phrase of spiritual worship is echoed in Romans chapter 12. Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. He says, when you offer yourself to God, this is a spiritual act of worship. When you offer your bodies and you offer your very self, gifts of finances go with that. But someone says, I hear what you're saying, but I'm just so worried about finances. I know. I know. All of us, to some degree, worry about finances. There's a study that came out not too long ago that I heard about this last week that surveyed people in all different stratospheres of the, of the wealth. Uh, I don't even know how I'm trying to say that. People who had different means and different bank accounts. Let's just put it that way. And across the board, everyone said that they would be content. They would, they would feel comfortable if they had 20 to 40% more than what they have right now. You gotta admit, right? If you had 20 to 40% more income than you have right now, wouldn't that be nice? I know that would feel nice, but, but the thing is, is once you get 20 to 40% more, then you wanna get 20 to 40% more of that. And 20 to 40% more than that. You see, it doesn't matter how much money you have, there's always gonna be the temptation to worry about finances. And so Paul, writing to his friends in Philippi, gives them this assurance. He says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Here's another one of those famous sayings from the book of Philippians that Christians have clung to through the years. I know it's been meaningful in my own life as I've had to raise funds on a number of different occasions, both to do ministry here in the United States and in Peru and Canada. And so the trust that God will provide for our needs is just that. It's a trust. If God doesn't show up, we're sunk. But Paul, in saying these words, is telling them this because he has seen it over and over again in his own life. And because Jesus himself said this very thing. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you. He's, he's talking. Remember, these are, these are poor farmers. As he's, as he's going through the countryside, he's talking to people who, who live on subsistence. I mean, they're, they're hand to mouth. They're, if the, if the If the crops fail, they're shot. He's not speaking to wealthy people, by and large. I know there's some Pharisees hanging around, keeping an eye on them. But he's speaking to the masses. And he says to them, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? And of which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've been anxious this past week, and it's probably just shortened my life. <laughs> Jesus says, 
which of you being anxious actually adds to his life? All that worry that you do, all those things you fret about, is it really helping you out in the end? Why are you anxious about clothing, Jesus says? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. There he makes reference to Solomon, the king of Israel, who was one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world. Jesus goes on. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus, if only you could believe. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles or, or the nations seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But this is what Jesus wants us to seek. He says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says, Listen, I want you to be dialed in to the kingdom of God. This good news about the reign of God that is coming in and through me. I want you to be dialed into that, and we will take care of the rest, me and my heavenly Father. I think one of the best examples of this is from a man named George Mueller. Have you ever heard of this man? He was the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. And while he was the director, he had some 10,000 kids come through that orphanage. And this was a man who relied on the donations of other people. But the crazy thing is, is he never let it be known. He never sent out letters saying, we need this, we need that. He would simply pray, and crazy things would happen. There's an article in Christianity.com that I pulled up just to refresh my memory about this, and this is how that article starts out. Quote, The children are dressed and ready for school, but there is no food for them to eat. The house mother of the orphanage informed George Mueller. George asked her to take the 300 children into the dining room and have them to sit at the tables. He thanked God for the food and waited. George knew God would provide food for the children, as he always did. And within minutes, a baker knocked on the door. Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I could not sleep. Somehow... I knew that you would need bread this morning. Somehow, somehow, I knew that you would need bread this morning. I got up and baked three batches for you. I will bring it in. Soon there was another knock at the door. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. Just so happened that his cart broke down in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed, and he asked George if he could use some free milk. George smiled. (laughs) Wish I could have seen that. George smiled as the milkman brought in ten large cans of milk. It was just enough for the 300 thirsty children. I wish I could say, I don't know why I said it that way. If I could say that just happened one time, that would be amazing. But over and over and over again, he simply trusted God. He wasn't anxious about anything. He simply let God know what he needed, and God took care of the rest. My friends, I see this happen over and over and over again. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the life of some of you. We witnessed God do that again and again this week. Sinclair Ferguson, in his 
fun little study guide on the book of Philippians, said the Philippians were seeking to put the kingdom of God and its advance first in their lives. I mean, how else could you describe them in their extreme poverty, giving to help people with food and water, to give to help the Apostle Paul in the advance of the gospel? They were seeking to put the kingdom of God first and its advance first in their life. That was why Paul, uh, well, I'm sorry, that's why they gave so lovingly to Paul. Paul was assuring them on the basis of Jesus' teaching and also of his own experience that everything they needed would be provided. Did you catch that phrase earlier in the song that we sang? All I have needed, thy hand has provided. And then, I'm just going to give you a heads up, there's some convicting questions coming up in this next slide. Sinclair Ferguson, not John Ferguson, said this. He says, do I really believe God will supply what I need if I give sacrificially? Or do I always give in such a way that sacrifice would be avoided? Good questions. Let's move on because that's convicting. Paul says, verse 19, my God. Paul is experience, uh, speaking experientially. I mean, he knows that this God that he worships, this God made known to him in, in new and fresh ways through the Lord Jesus Christ. This God, my God, will supply all your needs according to your riches in Christ and glory in Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 20, to our God, he shifts that pronoun from my God to our God. He includes these Philippians. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, somewhere deep within you, that's what you want to live for. That's what you want to see happen. More than any recognition you could get from giving, you want to see God glorified, first and foremost, because you know that's what you're created for. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And he sees these, Paul sees these Philippian Christians glorifying God and enjoying giving away when they have almost next to nothing. And so, we turn the corner here. The last words of Paul. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Remember at the very beginning of this book, chapter 1, verse 1, he said to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, we've walked with them through this book, and now he gets to the end, and he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Know that he doesn't say here, greet every Christian. The word Christian is only used three times in the scriptures, almost always in a negative connotation, spoken about others, about those people who follow Jesus. He doesn't even say, greet every follower of Jesus although that would make sense. But he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Do you know that that phrase, saint, is the New Testament's favorite word to describe everyday, ordinary Christians who seek to follow Jesus? It's used some 61 times. It literally means those who've been set aside. Those who, who've been set aside to, to form this community of faith, to engage in the mission of Jesus, and who seek to live according to the ways of Jesus. So he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And then he says, the brothers who are with me greet you. Timothy is there with Paul, we know, because Paul and Timothy are writing this letter. Timothy's probably acting as a scribe. He's, he's a partner with Paul. But what's interesting, and we're not going to spend any time on this, but if you wanted to, you could go to the book of Colossians. And at the end of that, as he signs off in his final greetings, he lists a number of people who are there with him in prison. Some of them are actually prisoners alongside Paul 
who are followers of Jesus, and some of them are just part of his missionary team, who are not in prison, but who are helping Paul coordinate mission, even while he's in prison. And then he says in verse 22, all the saints greet you. Who is he talking about here? Paul is in, in Rome, right? He's, he's in prison. He's been there for two years, waiting his trial before Nero. And he says, the, the, the uh, saints greet you here. All the saints greet you. What's interesting is, if you read the book of Romans, and you got to that final chapter, and it seems like just a bunch of random names he's throwing out there. Paul had not yet been to Rome. He's hoping to get there one day, but his partners, Priscilla and Aquila, who have gone back and forth to Rome, have told him about what God is doing in this, this new church. And so at the end of that, he's, he's writing to them, saying, greet these people for me. And at the very end, you can see right there, and all the saints who are with them. He's talking about these Christians who are in this church. And Paul hadn't met them yet. He had told them in the book of Romans that I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain. He's, he's wanting to come there and see them. And now, because he's been preaching about Jesus and made his appeal to, to Caesar, he got to free ride to a Roman jail cell in Rome, and he's finally gotten to meet these saints that he wrote to many years earlier. But not just simply the saints in Rome. All the saints greet you, especially those from Caesar's household. Wait, what? I can imagine the Philippian Christians hearing this letter read to them from Epaphroditus as he brings it back from Paul and and they hear Paul say, all the saints greet you, especially those from Caesar's household. What? The gospel is advancing so that people in Caesar's own household are coming to Christ? Yes. This isn't just his immediate family. A household in those days were everyone in that household. They were servants. They were the bakers. They were the launders. Everything. We already know from having studied this book and Philippians, back in chapter 1, Paul told them, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He says, look, I don't want you to feel bad for me. Everything I've gone through, it's been a lot, yes, but don't feel bad for me because everything has served to advance the gospel so that now the whole imperial guard has heard about Jesus. He knows, they know that I'm in, in chains for Christ. And what we need to know is that Imperial Guard, who served the Caesar at the time, comprised 9,000 soldiers. Some of those men had to be chained to Paul in four-hour guard duty units. <laughs> and so now, everything that has happened has served to advance the gospel. And so now, Nero Caesar can give the thumbs up or the thumbs down over Paul's life. But Paul tells these Philippian Christians, all the saints greet you, especially those from Caesar's household. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> They're participating in taking care of Paul in advancing the gospel by their gifts. And now they get to hear that it's even penetrated the halls of power. And so, Paul is writing to them to say thanks, among other things. Just think about this. If our friends in Philippi had not given this gift to Paul, we would never have had this letter of the Philippians. Have you stopped and think about that? We never would have had the privilege of reading these words of Paul as he says that the God who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. We would have never heard those words to live as Christ, to die as gain. 
We would have never heard that encouragement from Paul to, to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. We would, have, we would have never heard that beautiful Christ hymn in chapter 2, where he talks about how Jesus, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself, making himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We would have never heard those beautiful words where he says, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We would never have heard the encouragement from Paul to keep on working out what God is working in us because God is working in us to will and to act according to his good pleasure. We would have never heard those beautiful words from chapter 3 about how Paul said that he, that there's nothing that compares to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. We have never heard those beautiful words that have meant so much to you and to me from chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's so much that we would never have been able to read, let alone take to heart, if the Philippians had not been in partnership with the Apostle Paul. So can we take just a moment to appreciate this servant of Jesus, Paul, who is a saint, and these Christians living in Philippi who are described as saints, those Christians in Rome, and all of those Christians, all of those saints who are about the mission of Jesus that have made its way down to us. There's this poem called For All the Saints by Williams Walsham Howe. It goes like this. For all the saints who from their labors rest, who thee by faith before the world confessed, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thou wast their rock, their fortress, and their might. Thou, Lord, their captain in the well-fought fight. Thou in the darkness drear, their one true light. Hallelujah, hallelujah. So Paul signs off. Really in a way in which he began. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. These are, these are the words he wants ringing in their ears as they listen to the scroll being read. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul was all about Jesus, and he knows that they are too. And he just wants to encourage them that that grace that is in Christ Jesus is theirs. And he prays those blessings upon them. Remember in chapter 1, he said to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friends, we have come full circle. And we are saying bye to Paul. So, if you're feeling a little bit emotional, or maybe even just sentimental, that's okay. Because this book has been so transformational for us, hasn't it? My friends, may God supply your every need as you seek first Christ and his kingdom. Amen.